Well, good evening. Why don't we take a minute and pray. Father, we just thank you for this time of year as we do reflect on, on your son coming into this world and how the world celebrates. I think of the lights and decorations and presents and everything, oh Lord, that just captures our world during a time like this. And we desire that people find Jesus in this time, that they not lose him in the midst of it all. And we ask you, Lord, to help us tonight to see him more clearly as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I read the story about a woman who was running frantically on Christmas Eve, getting some last-minute shopping done, and at a certain point, she realized she lost track of her three-year-old son, which, if that's ever happened to you before, is a really scary thing. And so, in her panic, she began to backtrack all the places that she had been, and she eventually found him. The little boy was looking at a nativity scene, his little nose pressed against a frosted window, and when mom called the boy's name, he turned around and really said in a loud voice, look, mom, it's Jesus, it's Jesus in the manger. And the mom jerked the little boy away from the window and began to drag him away and said, we don't have time for this. Don't you know it's almost Christmas? Someone who missed the point of what it's all about. Of course, we can all relate to that, that Oftentimes in the midst of the preparations and everything else, I think we kind of miss the point of Christmas. But I want to suggest tonight, and some of you might disagree with this, but I'd like to suggest tonight that there are an awful lot of people in our, our country, in our world, that do not really understand what Christmas is about. They, they really don't. They know the story, they know about this baby that was born in a manger and the angels, and maybe they've heard about the Magi, but... But they don't understand what it's really about. And the reason I say that is that if you just look at the way our culture deals with Christmas, you realize that they're kind of all missing the point. They're trying so desperately to capture what has been called the spirit of Christmas, but oftentimes they, they kind of miss it. For example, if you're watching programs on television, maybe the, the Christmas specials on the Hallmark Channel or or. At our house, we have a number of Christmas DVDs, and uh, we love watching the Christmas stories. And, and, and during this time of year, there'll be newscasts that will try to catch human interest stories related to Christmas. All of them are trying to grab a hold of what the spirit of Christmas is, whatever that means, or what's the reason for the season. But the things that they land on as the meaning or the reason for the season are are not exactly what the main point is anyway. For example, many will think that the spirit of Christmas is actually the spirit of giving. And so if you watch a Christmas carol, for example, and you see Scrooge at the beginning, and he's just so stingy, and at the end, he finally gets it, and he's finally generous, and he's got this heart that just opens up to everyone else, and it's like he got the spirit of Christmas. Or some people have the idea that the spirit of Christmas is really just about relationships, family, or, or friends, or whatever. I think of George in It's a Wonderful Life. I think that's my wife's favorite Christmas movie. We love to watch that every year. But, but you know, George, uh, toward the end of the movie, his needs are taken care of. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to give away anything. Although, if you haven't seen it by now, I'm just saying. It's been around a long time. But at the end of the movie, you know, he's not a rich man still, and yet 
Somebody shouts, you know, to the richest man in town. Well, why is he rich? Because he's got people who love him. He's got friends and family that care about him. And so that's, that's the spirit of Christmas. Or oftentimes it's just in a general sense, the spirit of, of caring for the needs of the less fortunate. And so during this time of year, we begin to look around us just a little bit and, and our hearts open up and we think maybe that's the spirit of Christmas. All of these things I think are, I think they're wonderful things. I'm glad that our, our culture raises these values up during this time of year. In fact, I wish they would talk about these things all year long. But they all miss the point, at least the main point, of what Christmas is really about. I want to suggest here tonight that Christmas is ultimately, the main point, is about setting people free. Setting people free. Maybe a little bit different way of saying this than you might think of it normally, but Jesus, when he was born, was called Jesus because his name means Savior or the Lord saves. He came to be our deliverer. He came to be the one who sets us free, and specifically free from the penalty of our sin, but so much more than that, as we'll see before we're done tonight. He came to set us free from lots of things, and oftentimes I think people don't understand that. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been doing a series titled BC. Uh, it, we're looking at the Christmas story and various aspects of the story, but along the way, we've noted the fact that a lot of the Christmas stories that are part of the bigger Christmas story have prophecies associated with them. God predicted hundreds of years ahead of time that certain things would be fulfilled in Jesus. And especially Matthew, the gospel writer, includes these prophecies when he's telling the story. And so we've been looking at not just the Christmas story, but we've been going back mostly 700 plus years to when the prophecy was made. And in that sense, I'm just suggesting that it was Christmas before Christmas. And today we're going to continue looking at a story that we began looking at last week, the story of the Magi. We're going to actually continue this story. If you were here last week, you know that some mysterious visitors arrived in Jerusalem about a year and a half to two years after Jesus was born. They were called Magi. Magi are a combination, it seems, of, of priests, scientists, and astrologers. Someone also noted to me last week, which I knew this was the case, that they are, are many of them were part of the Zoroastrian group, a religious group that followed this guy named Zoroaster. And many of the Magi were that. They were just part of this religious group. We don't know if these Magi were that, but they traveled, we know, hundreds of miles to come and see this baby. And they knew some things about this baby that are kind of remarkable. We don't know how they knew. But they knew that he was, first of all, the king of the Jews. And second, they knew he was divine. They said, we have come to, to worship him. And I don't understand how they knew that. What's remarkable to me is that they were Gentiles, not Jews. And so they arrive in Jerusalem. They go to King Herod in Jerusalem and ask, where is he who's to be born king of the Jews? Herod didn't know, so he called the religious leaders. And, and they said, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah the prophet said. Oh, Bethlehem, though you're tiny, out of you is going to come this ruler. 
And so that's what we looked at last week, this story of how these magi then made their way to Jesus and presented him with gold and frankincense and myrrh. But the story continues today. But in order to get where we're going, I want to go back just a little bit and read where Herod was speaking with the magi before they left his palace. Because it appears that they arrived in the city, they asked Herod where the baby was to be born. They got the answer, but then Herod pulled them aside, and that's what kind of begins the story we're going to continue tonight, and where we begin to get our takeaway that it's really about setting people free. Beginning in Matthew 2 and verse 7, we read, Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now we know that Herod's intention was not good. The reason that he had asked the timing of the star when it appears was he wanted to determine the age of the child, and he wanted to know the location of the baby so that he could kill the baby. He viewed Jesus as a threat to his throne. By the way, when it says that the Magi saw the star in the east, some people are puzzled by that because Bethlehem is to the west. And so it just raises the question, wait a minute, why did they see the star in the east when Bethlehem is to the west? No, they saw the star while they were in the east. The star was never in the east. The star was in the west. The star was over in the area of Israel, and they saw this amazing star. And I'll talk in a little bit about what I think that star was. But let's continue the story and see what happened next and then tie it in with what we're talking about tonight. In verse 13... Of Matthew 2, we read, after they were gone, after the Magi left, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. So that's the prophecy we're looking at tonight, a prophecy that was made by the prophet Hosea over 700 years earlier, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Matthew is saying that Hosea was referring to the fact that the first family was going to end up in Egypt, and then God was going to call them back to Israel. Now, I want to make the point tonight that this is a picture that applies really in four different ways in the Bible, as we're going to see in a minute, this idea that we were called out of Egypt, you're my son, I called you out of Egypt. It applied to the Old Testament story where the nation of Israel was called out of Egypt into the promised land. 
It applied in the day of Hosea, as we'll see in a minute. It applied to Joseph and Mary, and it applies to us. Because Egypt has always been, in biblical terms, a picture of slavery. And being called out of Egypt is being called out of this place of slavery to this place of joy and sonship, which is what God wants to do in our lives. Now, again, the prophecy comes from Hosea. It's chapter 11 and verse 1 where the prophet said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea was, again, looking, he was looking ahead, but with the statement that he made in this place right here, he was also looking to the past, as we're going to see in a minute. Now, something I want us to understand about this, and really this whole series, I've mentioned before that about a year ago, I was able to go to Israel with Ray Vanderland, and along the way, I learned a lot of lessons. I took just reams of notes. I've got several books of notes I took while we were going through the desert and climbing and everything else that we were doing. But the main thing I walked away when I came back with is that the Jewish mindset in reading the scriptures is different than the way we tend to view the scriptures. When they read stories, when they read certain Hebrew words or concepts, they look for other places in the Bible where those same things occurred and then they attach them to one another. We don't tend to do that. We read a story or something by itself, but that's not the way the Jewish mind works. In fact, I have several Jewish commentaries, commentaries that are not by Christians, but by Jewish people, and they'll do that throughout. They'll say, now, the last time that this phrase came up was over here. And then they'll tie the two stories together, and it demonstrates that the Word of God is one book. An example of this in our day and age, or if you were reading your Bible today, would be if you were reading in the New Testament book of Revelation, which a lot of people avoid because it's hard to understand and kind of scary anyway. But the book of Revelation has a, a description of a, a garden, and it describes some trees. Well, when you're reading that in Revelation, your mind should immediately go to, wait a minute, where have I seen a garden before? Where have I seen some trees your mind goes immediately to Genesis, where there's a beautiful garden, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and um, there's the tree of life, which is referred to again in the Bible and other places. And you tie those ideas together, and in order to understand Revelation, you've got to understand what happened in Genesis. Well, the Bible is filled with things like this. And so when Hosea talked about this out of Egypt, I've called my son... He was tying together a bunch of ideas, and so that's what I want to do tonight. We're going to start chronologically with the Old Testament and then move into the New Testament to the present hour. In the Old Testament, of course, you may remember the story how there was a man named Israel. Before there was a country named Israel, there was a man named Israel. He had 12 sons. They married and had kids. When there were about 70 of them, there was a, a severe famine in the land, where they were, and they heard that there was food in Egypt. And so they made their way to Egypt, and it turns out that one of the 12 sons of Israel had arrived in Egypt 13 years earlier. He had arrived at a as a slave, but now he was second in command of Pharaoh, and he was in charge of all the food of Egypt. And so Joseph had been called ahead by God 
to provide for the needs of this group, this family, this small group of Israelites. For the next 400 years, the Israelites were in Egypt and they multiplied. They just had kids and more kids and more kids and so there became so many of them that the Egyptians became afraid of them. They thought if there's some kind of battle, they'll turn against us and they'll defeat us and so they decided while they still had the upper hand that they would subject the Israelites to slavery and that's exactly what they did. They enslaved them. And the people began to cry out to God, and it was a a horrible situation for them. In addition, they came up with another idea. In order to limit the population growth, the Pharaoh came up with the idea of killing all the baby boys that would be born from then on. And so if a Jewish woman delivered a boy, that boy was to be killed. It was the first infanticide that we read in the Bible. But if you know the story, you know that there was a particular boy that escaped the infanticide. It was Moses. Moses was God's chosen deliverer, savior for the people, the one that God was protecting. His parents put him in a a little ark, actually is the word that's used, a little boat. And And Pharaoh's own daughter saw the basket that he was in and adopted Moses into the very household of Pharaoh. And within Pharaoh's household, Moses was raised up. But he was the one that God had chosen to lead the people out of Egypt to the promised land, to a land that God promised to give the people, a land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. And you remember that Pharaoh then was told, or Pharaoh was approached by Moses and told, let my people go. And what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh is very telling and it ties in with Hosea's prophecy. In Exodus 4, 22 and 23, we read what God said to Moses. Then you are to say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. God began to send these plagues upon the Egyptians, and Pharaoh wasn't listening, so Moses was sent back to say, listen, Israel's my son, my firstborn son. I'm telling you, let him go. Now, I don't know that this had ever been described in this way before anywhere in the Bible where a people group was described as being a son of God. But, of course, this is what God wants to do with us as well. He wants to call us out of Egypt, a place where we're enslaved to our sin and its penalty, and calls us, he wants to call us sons and daughters. And this is how God was calling the people of Israel. And Hosea tapped into that. And after a number of plagues and miracles that were performed at the hand of Moses, you remember Moses led the people out of Egypt. But do you remember how God led them? It wasn't just through Moses. He, he said, I'll go with you. And he went through with them in a very particular way. It says that they were led through the desert by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night so that they could see it. And so anytime God moved, they moved and they followed God through the desert and then they finally arrived in the promised land. So that's the first story. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. 
The people arrived in the promised land and they enjoyed the land that God had given to them and it was a wonderful thing. Now we skip ahead to the story, the Christmas story. You've got these magi who are in the land of Persia most likely. They see the star while they're there in the east. There's been a lot of speculation as to what the star was. Some have suggested it was a special star Others have suggested it was an alignment of the planets like Jupiter and Mars or whatever, but I think it was something else. I think it was God himself. I think God led them through the desert to the Savior. I think that's what this story is about. Why do I say that? Well, this isn't like any other star. In Matthew 2 and verse 9, after the Magi left King Herod, it says, after hearing the king... They went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east, or when they were in the east. It led them until it came and then stopped above the place where the child was. The star was moving them along, like, come on, come on, pick up the pace here, guys. The star is moving, and then it gets to the place, the right house, and it stops. That sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament story where God led them. Only these were Gentiles, and I believe a big part of this story is that Jesus wants to deliver both Jews and Gentiles, all people. He's the Savior for the whole world. And so they arrive, and of course, they, they bow before the child and give him gifts, and then Mary and Joseph, of course, have to flee on their way to Egypt. But they were provided for, just like God provided for Israel through Joseph, the gift of the Magi provided the means for Joseph and Mary to survive in Egypt until it was time for them to be called back home. But Jesus grew up just like Moses did, and you remember that he performed miracles, signs and wonders. The miracles in Moses' day were supposed to point to Moses as God's deliverer so everybody would know it. They couldn't deny it. It set him apart. Well, the same thing was true in Jesus' day. He performed miracles so the people would realize that he was indeed the Savior, the Deliverer, the one to whom you need to hear and listen. Moses, of course, had prophesied that such a one was coming. Moses said, there's going to be someone that's coming after me that's going to be just like I was. Only the deliverance that Jesus wants to provide is infinitely greater See, what Jesus provides for us is deliverance from the penalty of our sin and more. That's what Jesus came to do, to set us free. God sent his son into the world to become our savior because we need a savior. We can't fix our sinfulness, our brokenness. We can't fix our wrongness enough for a holy God. We need a deliverer, and that's why Jesus came into this world Specifically, to go on a cross, to die in our place and for our sins, so that through faith in him we could have life. Now, there was deliverance in the Old Testament through Moses, and there's deliverance that Jesus provides for us. In the middle here is the story of Hosea. The people in Hosea's day were not interested in a savior, and they didn't want a father. They didn't want a father. If we look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we connect the, continue the story there in the middle. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 2, the more they called them, the more they departed from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying that when Israel was a child, I loved him. I called him out of Egypt to the promised land from slavery to this wonderful place. I called Israel my very son. The more they, which is the prophets of God, the more the prophets of God called to the people, the more they, the people, departed from God. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and kept burning offerings to the idols. Hosea is making the point, listen, don't you realize God wants to be your father? Don't you realize that he delivered you out of slavery and into freedom and he called you a son and, and he wants to do that again and he keeps calling out to you, but the more he calls out to you, the more you keep turning away from him. And you're going after the idols, you're going after the Baals and the false gods. And they would not listen to Hosea. And within a very short period of time, after Hosea said these things, the Assyrians came in. They swooped down. They probably killed most of the Israelites, and they carted the rest off into slavery. Israel ended up in the very same spot that they had been when God had first released them, back into slavery, back in this horrible place. It's a warning for us. And then Matthew quotes the, the same thing, and it's for our benefit. Out of Egypt, I've called my son because I think this is what God wants to do for us. Two applications here tonight for some of you, again, I don't know, some of you maybe have never put your trust in Jesus, and, and that's the step for you. We celebrate Christmas and Easter because it is God's plan to get people right and to, to release us from the penalty of our sin that clings to us like a disease. Jesus was willing to take upon himself the penalty for everything you've ever done wrong and everything you will do wrong. He died for the sin of the world. This is why the incarnation was essential because he had to be both God and man. As God, he never sinned. He was a sinless one. He obeyed God fully, never sinned. He could go to the cross as one who didn't deserve the penalty but could take yours and mine. As a man, he could die. It was God's plan. Even before God created people, this was his plan. Jesus was chosen to be our savior before God created the world because God knew we'd fail and turn from God. And Jesus died and was buried, but he rose again. And the requirement that God has of us, if we're to be right with God, the one requirement that's found throughout the pages of the Bible alone is trust or faith. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. God declared Abraham right in his eyes based on his trust, his faith. And so we believe in John 3.16 that the only requirement is faith. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So if you've never done that, I encourage you to. Most people do it through a prayer. It's like, I know I've sinned. I know I need a deliverer. And today I put my trust in Jesus to be my deliverer, the one who died for me, the one who paid the price for me, and then rose again from the dead. The resurrection proved God accepted the payment. And through faith in Christ, we have eternal life. We're set free from the penalty of our sin. If you're already a believer in Christ, though, we're set free from other things. 
In Galatians 5.1, Paul wrote, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Phillips puts it this way, plant your feet firmly, therefore, within the freedom that Christ has won for us and do not let yourselves be caught again in the shackles of slavery. In what ways are Christians set free? Well, we've already been set free from the penalty of sin, but you may not realize we're also set free from the power of sin. We might think that um, we can't say no to temptation, but we can. In Romans chapter 6, we read that the chains of our slavery, to the power of sin have been broken as well. The spirit of Christ lives within us. We have the ability to say no to every sin. Now, we love the things we do wrong sometimes, and that makes it hard, but we have, by the grace of God, the ability. We've been set free. We've been set free from the power of sin. It does not have to rule our lives anymore. As Paul put it, sin is not your master anymore. But we're free from other things as well. We're free from the Old Testament law. We don't have to follow all the rules of the Old Testament. I'm glad about that. I, didn't, I don't like the idea of sacrificing animals, frankly. But also the dietary rules and everything else. We're set free from all of that. We're also set free from all kinds of rules and regulations that some of you were raised with. Some of you came from churches where you were oppressed every Sunday. Every week you came out thinking, I'm just a horrible, horrible person. They kept just railing on you for all the things you're doing wrong. You just don't do this, don't do this. We're set free from all of that. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship with Christ. That's what he's talking about here. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been set free from the rules in a rule-based religion, we've been set free from our past. All the things that weigh you down, we've been set free from fear. We don't have to be afraid. It's, I know we, we struggle to connect with God in such a way that we alleviate some of these things completely from our lives, but their, their grip on us has been broken. We've been set free from that. And we've been set free to certain things. We've been set free to love. We've been set free to experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control qualities that God's Spirit wants to produce in our lives. In a nutshell, we're set free from anything that enslaves us. And one day, we'll be completely set free from everything that weighs us down. One day, there'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. One day, we'll get a new body. All of this is because of Christ. He came to set us free. That's why he came. And so I hope that somehow during this holiday season you find the freedom that's possible through Christ because that's really the most important thing of what it's about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your willingness to send your son for us to be our deliverer, the one to set us free. We're just grateful, Lord, to you. We recognize we don't deserve your love or your kindness so often, O oh Lord, we even rebel against you and turn away from you, and yet you love us and you pursue us like sheep who've gone astray. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus so that through him we could have eternal life. But thank you also for all the other things from which you've set us free. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.